Well, let me invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me this morning to Acts chapter 21. And we'll be uh, starting in verse 37. And we're going to be looking at Paul's defense of the gospel. So what has happened is Paul has uh, come back to Jerusalem from his third missionary journey. He has been in the temple praying, but there's a lot of false news that have been circulating about him. That he's very anti-Jewish. That he's even supposedly brought a Gentile into the temple. This is not true, but this is nevertheless some of the fake news that was going on about him. And so he's in the temple The Jews have uh, observed him being in there with all of these false lies about him circulating in their brain. So they seem and they just, in their rage, they arrest the Apostle Paul. They start beating him, wanting to kill him. And as an angry mob of Jews, they're really wanting to tear him limb from limb. And that's when the Roman commander showed up with at least 200 soldiers and they rescued the Apostle Paul. Now what Paul does next, I think is truly amazing. And I think he teaches us an important way as to how we're to respond to persecution. I think this passage is so relevant today because... We're all aware that within our own culture, it's growing more and more anti-Christian. The courts, the media, institutions of education, government, businesses are all increasingly implementing a secular anti-Christian worldview. And how should we respond when we are caught in the crosshairs of their anger and their wrath? And I think what the Apostle Paul's response will do will begin to give us some godly insights into how we uh, should respond. And so this is not really hypothetical anymore. This is a growing reality in our own day. I think for many of us, our heads are spinning at how fast things are changing. And I think as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ who want to live faithful lives and give a faithful godly witness, we need to know how to do that. And I think the Apostle Paul will uh, give us an amazing example of that. Well, let's begin in verse 37. I'm going to read uh, Acts 21, verse 37. I'm going to read all the way down through verse 16, which is kind of towards the end of his defense of the gospel before this mob of Jews. So we're not going to complete it all this morning, but we're going to we're going to start into it. We're going to launch ourselves into it. So let me begin reading the inspired word of God in Acts chapter 21 verse 37. So please uh, listen in faith and reverence to the reading of God's word. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, He said to the commander, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Then are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? 
But Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand. And when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, saying, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God just as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. And also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. But it happened that as I was on my way, approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene whom you're persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, get up and go on into Damascus, and there you will be told all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came to Damascus. A certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I looked up at him. And he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And we'll stop there. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, as we turn back to chapter 21, verse 37. So Paul has been rescued by the Roman commander. The Jewish mob is wanting to kill him right there in the temple. or They're going to drag him outside like they did Stephen and stone him out there. But they're out for blood. And while all this is going on in verse 37 the commander decided that for his safety, he needed to bring Paul into the barracks. Now, the barracks would be the fortress of Antonia in the northwest corner of the temple compound. That's where all the Roman soldiers were. 
And so for to keep Paul safe, his, his intent is to take him into the barracks. And Paul, verse 37, said to the commander, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? So apparently Paul is addressing the commander in Greek, which the commander knows. He wouldn't know Aramaic, or if he did, he'd only know just a small amount of it. So he talks to the commander in Greek, and the commander responds, Do you know Greek? Then you then are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt? Now, the New American Standard I'm reading from actually phrases this differently. It says, then you are not the Egyptian. And actually, it's the other way around. The commander thinks Paul is the Egyptian. And you get that from the Greek text. It's a question, but it uses a particle that affirms a positive answer. So the answer should be, are you the Egyptian? And the answer should be yes. He's thinking he's the Egyptian, that Paul is the Egyptian. Now, just a little background. This About three years earlier from this event, there was an Egyptian Jew who spoke Greek because that was his, his uh, native tongue. And he stirred up a bunch of Jews in, uh, in Judah and Israel to fight against the Romans. According to Josephus, who isn't always totally accurate, but he said that this Egyptian Jew claimed to be a prophet and led a band of 30,000 Jews to the Mount of Olives. And what he told them on the Mount of Olives, he said, look, I'm a prophet of God. I'm going to speak the Word and the walls of the city are going to fall down. We're going to go in and invade the fortress of Antonia and we're going to kill all the, Jew, all the Romans and, and take back our city. That was, the, that was the boast that he made. And all these people believed him that he was a prophet of God. The governor Felix, the Roman governor, heard about what was happening. He sent out troops. They slaughtered a lot of these Jews. And this Egyptian Jew, who claimed to be the prophet, escaped with probably 4,000 men. That's referenced in verse 38. It says, And he led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. This is after they had been attacked by Governor Felix and the Romans. Many had been, had been uh, killed. And so they fled out into the wilderness, 4,000 of them. And the Roman uh, commander is thinking that he's come back now and all the Jews are so against him because many of their friends have been killed in all that massacre. And so they're trying to, they're coming after him and, and trying to do him in. That's what he's thinking in, the, in his mind. Notice in verse 37, verse 38 rather, he led out 4,000 men of the assassins. And that word assassins is literally the Sakari. And this comes from the word dagger. And what this man, this Egyptian Jew, had done is he had collected a group of Jewish assassins who became like a hit squad who would carry out vigilante-style executions and assassinations in Jerusalem. He would do that to the Roman leaders. He would also do it to Jewish leaders who were too friendly with the Romans. And they're called assassins. Again, the word literally means the, the men of, of the dagger because they would, they would hide in their cloaks small daggers. And during the big feast days, 
of the Jews, they would mingle among the multitudes and when they came up to either a Jew or a Roman, that was, if the Jew was pro-Roman or just the Roman, the leader, then they would sneak up to him, pull out their dagger, stab him, kill him, and then hide in the crowd and eventually escape. That's these assassins. They're like a, a Jewish terrorist group and they would, they would, they were not below killing their own people. It would be like a Jew on Jew murder to terrorize the people. Or they would kill a Roman a citizen or authority or a leader. And they would use terrorism to thwart any friendliness with the Romans. They would use violence to intimidate people. And you know, that, that's, that's always been a successful method. It's, it's successful today. You know, you got all these riders that come in, they use violence to, to terrorize people to, to not stand up for what's right and what's wrong. This has always been a tactic and it worked back then and sadly it works today. But that's what these assassins are. And the commander is thinking Paul is one of them. Paul in verse 39 identifies himself. He corrects him. He said, no, 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 no. I'm a Jew of Tarsus and Cilicia a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to my people. So he identifies himself as coming from Tarsus, Cilicia, not Egypt. So he's clearly not this man. And in verse 39 and 40, again, he's requesting permission to speak. In verse 40 we read, And when he had given him permission, Paul standing on the stairs motioned to the people with his hand, and when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect. So now he's speaking Aramaic to the mob. Now notice he's on the stairs. So apparently the Roman commander and at least 200 of these uh, soldiers are now taking Paul into the barracks. And they've got to go up a flight of stairs. As they're on the stairs, Paul asks him permission to speak to him. He grants it. So now he turns and he's no longer speaking Greek. He's speaking Hebrew or Aramaic is actually the Hebrew and Aramaic are kind of sister languages. But Aramaic was basically the tongue of everyone who lived in Judea at this time. So he begins to address them in Aramaic. Now this is very strategic because one of the accusations against Paul is that he's anti-Jewish He's against the Jewish people. He's against the Jewish law. He's against the Jewish temple. So what he begins to do is now speaking the Jewish language to them. So what he's trying to do is to establish some kind of common bond. Common ground. To show that he's a bona fide Jew speaking the everyday language of Palestinian Jews. So now he begins his defense in verse 1 of chapter 22. Notice how it begins. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. Now again, what Paul is going to do in this uh, defense speech that he's making is to try to undermine some of these false accusations against him that he's anti-Jewish primarily. And Paul's Defense is to share his testimony. That's what he's going to do. To identify with his audience to show that he's not anti-Jewish. 
that really he's just like they are now. He used to be just like they are to try to get them to, to have some maybe sympathy or identification with him. And then he's going to talk about his conversion experience to show that, look, what I'm preaching now, what I'm standing for now, is not just some wild idea that blew up in my brain. This is actually coming from God Himself to try to convince them of the supernatural character and nature of His ministry. He will identify Christ as the Messiah who intends to save both Jew and Gentiles. And once He mentions that word Gentile, we won't get into it this morning, but that just puts them over the top. The Jews cannot stand the idea, and we'll look at that more later on. But notice how he begins in verse 1. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense which I now offer to you. He's trying to be conciliatory. He's, he's respectful. You know, it's not like, uh, he doesn't say, you brood of hell-bound vipers, what are you doing? I mean, he said, he's speaking respectfully to them. Brethren, my brethren, fathers, that's a term of respect. So he, he's trying to be as polite as he, as he certainly can. I think that in and of itself is a lesson to us, just to be polite. We don't all have to take the John the Baptist approach at times, uh, but, uh, they would have killed him without a trial. And what Paul is doing is now putting himself on the witness stand. And why is he doing this? This is, this is the amazing thing about it. They have just beaten him literally, probably to a pulp. I've often wondered, why did they have to carry him up the stairs? Maybe because he was so beat up and battered from the beating that he had just received from these people, he couldn't even necessarily walk right. And they had to, they had to pick him up to, to try to carry him up the stairs faster. And yet, look at how he responds to them. Look at the heart that he has for them. His desire is to see them saved. His desire is to see them come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. His desire is to preach the Gospel to them, to win them. These are the people who had just beaten Him mercilessly. And yet, He's not responding in like kind. He's responding with a desire to see them saved. We'll consider that more in just a a few moments. But He begins by giving His Basically, his pre-conversion life in Judaism. We start in verse 2, and when, he, when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in the city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God just as you all are today. So he begins by he's telling his testimony, and he begins with his BC days, his pre-conversion life as a Jew. And notice he says in verse three that uh, he was brought up in this city. He was born in Tarsus, but he was brought he was brought to Jerusalem as a young kid, and he was brought up in the city of Jerusalem, educated under Gamaliel. 
Now, Gamaliel was a highly revered teacher in Judaism. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. We've already run into him in Acts chapter 5. He was a leader of the school of Hillel, which is one of the leading uh, Talmudic schools of Israel. He was the leader of it. He was the grandson of Hillel who started that school. Uh, he is considered one of the greatest teachers in all of the annals of Judaism, known as having tremendous respect for the law of God. That's Gamaliel. And Paul is saying to this Jewish mob, guys, listen up. I was raised in Jerusalem. I was educated under the premier Jewish scholar of Israel of that day, Gamaliel. He was my teacher. And what he's trying to emphasize to these people is that basically, look, I am one of you by race and by education. In other words, I have had a prestigious education under Gamaliel. What he's trying to communicate is, look, my background is 100% kosher. I am 100% Jewish. And again, he's trying to get them to, to understand him better. Trying to establish that common ground. This uh, connection with Gamaliel drove home to the Jews that Paul was trained by, by, by one of the leading, the renowned teachers of their day. And this was a big feather in anyone's religious cap. Today it would be like having a mathematics degree from MIT or something. People would be impressed. Well, they, they would be impressed to know that he was educated and trained under Gamaliel. Notice how he also says in verse 3 that he was educated strictly according to the law of our fathers. Strictly. And that word means that he was taught to thoroughly observe all the traditions of his pharisaical uh, education and training. In other words, he's saying, my credentials are impeccable. There is no defect in my training. My ministry now is not the result of any faulty aspect of my previous education. I was trained under Gamaliel. So again, he's just trying to establish rapport with them. And then in verse 4 and 5, he speaks to his character, primarily his zeal as a persecutor of Christians. He says in verse 4, I persecuted this way. Well, at the end of verse 3, he says, I'm, I'm zealous for God. I was zealous for God, just as you all are today. Verse 4, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prison. So he starts out by speaking to his, his zeal as a persecutor. And notice in verse 4, I persecuted this way to the death. He said, look, you guys are wanting to kill me and spill my blood. I've got blood on my hands too. I've done the very same thing that you're trying to do to me today. I have persecuted Christians to the death. He had blood on his hands. And then he said he, he bound putting men and women into prison. No gender issue here. Men and women he would put into prisons. And later on in Acts 26, he will say, I was furiously enraged with them. So he's trying to make them say, look, the very emotions that you guys are feeling towards me, I have felt them too. I have experienced them. I was in your place, standing in your shoes. 
trying to get them to, to think through what's happened to him. And then in verse 5 he says, and also the high priest and all the council of the elders, that would be the Sanhedrin, can testify for from them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. So he's saying, look, I received letters from the Sanhedrin to go out and find any Christian I could find out in the other cities, capture them, drag them back to Jerusalem, put them on trial, and hopefully get the death sentence for them, and then I would vote for them if I need to, for their death. In other words, Saul was... He's Saul at this time. He was probably on the payroll of the Sanhedrin as a bounty hunter. That's basically what he's like. Saul was kind of a government-paid terrorist. Not only to spy on his enemies, but to persecute them. To entrap them. To, to, to throw them in jail. Kind of sound familiar. <laughs> Things going on in our own country. He, he was like uh, the, the Nazi Gestapo in World War II or the secret police which played a key role in the Nazi plan to exterminate the Jews of Europe. And he's like a, a, a Jewish Gestapo to persecute and exterminate Christians from the land. That's where he's at. His zeal was so intense that he was willing to go anywhere that Christians were to arrest them and bring them back to be punished. Even to Damascus. That was a six-day journey if you walked. Six days. And I could just imagine the Sanhedrin saying in one of their, their meetings, you know, we hear there's some Christians up in Damascus. We need someone to go up and get them and bring them back. Saul so they send me. Send, I'll go. That was a measure of his zeal and his hatred towards Christ and against His church. Totally deceived. Totally blind. Just as Jesus prophesied in John chapter 16, verse 2, He says, there'll come a day when they will seek to put you to death and all the while they're doing it thinking that they are serving God. Paul thought he was serving God. Saul thought he was serving God. In other words... His first point, of course, is that I was anything but anti-Jewish. You've heard the story. Some people call me anti-Jewish. I was anything but. I was the Jew of Jews. You know, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I wasn't anti-Jewish. He's just trying to identify with his background and with them. He was a radical. He was a radical. And you know... Paul later, he never forgot the depth of the sin and the evil that he was guilty of. Uh, that's why he tells it here. He'll tell the story again in chapter 26 and another opportunity to share his testimony. But he never forgot the depths of his own depravity and the evil hatred and persecution that he had of the saints. In fact, when he wrote his letter to the Corinth, his first letter, Chapter 15, verse 9, he says, you know, he says, brothers, I'm, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. 
because I persecuted the church of God. He never forgot. He never forgot it. Sometimes we are not to forget the sins of our past. Some of us in this room maybe are guilty of some pretty terrible sins. Sins that you've been forgiven of by the grace of God and Jesus Christ. Praise God. He forgives us all of our sins, but we don't forget. And sometimes you may even awaken at night remembering some of those past sins. But in God's providence, Paul never forgot what he was like. And we should never forget because ultimately it's not to plague us. Those memories are not there to plague us, but to keep us humble, to pull the plug on our pride, and to keep us always with a thankful heart. Thank You, Lord, for forgiving me of those sins. Oh God, thank You. And Paul never forgot. And that's why he was such a a humble servant, giving his life to Christ Because he never forgot the dregs of the depravity from which Christ had cleansed him and saved him from. Well, from this, starting in verse 6, he now begins to share his conversion experience, his encounter with Christ. And he says in verse 6, But it happened that I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, and a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. Now what he adds here that Luke doesn't record back in Acts chapter 9 where Paul's conversion is actually told by Luke. And here in verse 6, he adds that it was noontime. And that's significant. Because at noontime, the sun is right overhead. It's the brightest time of the day. And when Paul could say at noontime in verse 6, there was a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. You know how bright that light must be. It's not like being at midnight in a thunderstorm and you see a lightning bolt. Wow, that's bright. No, this is in, this is noonday high with the sun right overhead and a bright light in the midst of that kind of, of light already is an incredibly bright light. This would be a, a manifestation of the Shekinah glory of God. In chapter 26, he'll say it's brighter than the sun. This light flashed all around him. And of course, it blinded him for three days. But in verse 7, he says, he, he fell. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, and now we have the divine call of Jesus Christ to Saul. This is his conversion experience. And, and Paul recounts it as the divine call of the Lord upon his life. There's four elements to this call given to us in this passage. I want to quickly walk through them with you. The first one is that it was an individual call. Notice verse 7. I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, Why are you persecuting me? It was an individual call. Personal. Jesus didn't speak from heaven because, you know, remember Saul was with a group of other men, other Jews who were with him to go make these arrests. The Lord from heaven didn't say, hey, anybody listening? Anybody out there? Anybody home? He said, no, specifically Saul. Saul. 
This was, this was a, a very individualistic call of God. Reminds me of John 10, verse 3, when Jesus says that He calls His own sheep by name. And there are other times in the Bible when God calls a man and calls His name twice. And usually when He does that, He is, he is drafting that individual into a specialized ministry. For example, at the burning bush in Exodus 3, it was Moses, Moses. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 3, Samuel, Samuel. And now Saul, Saul. He's being called, but he's being called individually, personally by Almighty God. You also see this in verse 9. Because those who are with me saw the light to be sure but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. So the other people that were with Saul, they heard the noise, but they didn't make out the words. They didn't understand what was being said. Why? Because they didn't have ears to hear. God gave Saul ears to hear. God didn't give them ears. They heard the noise, but they didn't understand what was being said. Why? Because this was only for Saul. This was a specific individual call of one man only within that group. Not only was it an individual call, it was a convicting call. Look at verse 7 again. Why are you persecuting me? Why are you doing such evil against me? It was a convicting call. It addressed the very nature of Saul's sin. He was guilty of persecuting the very followers of the Messiah. And Jesus Christ confronts him face to face, if you will, with the very depths of his own depravity. And what's so important about this is that the conviction of sin must always precede saving faith. If someone has comes and believes in Jesus Christ, but there's no conviction of sin, his faith is counterfeit. And so the Lord Jesus immediately arrests Saul and confronts him with this conviction of his own sin. Why are you persecuting me? Now look who's on trial. It's Christ holding Saul to account. He's standing before the judge being interrogated by God Almighty for His sin and His wretchedness. And notice He said, why are you persecuting Me? Because Christ so unites with His people that to persecute them is to persecute Him. He takes it personally because His heart is with us. Anytime anybody abuses you or speaks against you or does anything against you, Christ's eye is right on them. He hears every word and He will hold them accountable. Every time. It may not be till the day of judgment that they get punished for it. But nothing will get past the infinite gaze of the shepherd of His sheep. No one messes with His sheep without paying a dear price later on if they do not repent. 
Let it be a warning to all those who mistreat any of the saints of God. Let it be a warning to all those judges and all those courts who say churches must not meet together to worship God. Let them listen because what they say and what they do, God will hold them accountable for any persecution of the bride of Christ. He puts our tears in His bottle and records them in His book. Psalm 56, He sees. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And what you're doing to my followers, you're doing to me because we are one. Why are you persecuting me? It was a convicting call. And that penetrated deeply, no doubt, into the very soul of this man. Not only was it an individual call, a convicting call, it was also an identifying call in verse 8. Paul says, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. I am Jesus the Nazarene. Here the Lord clearly identifies who is speaking. Jesus was well known as the Nazarene. Believers were not only called the way, which is referenced up earlier when Paul said that he persecuted the way to the death. But they're also called the sect of the Nazarenes. In other words, they are followers of Jesus, the Nazarene. But Jesus identifies who He is. That's very important. People need to know who God is if they want to be saved. This is not, the voice didn't say, well, I'm your higher power. He didn't say this is some inner voice of your imagination. He didn't say, well, I'm just your best self today. He didn't identify Himself as Baal or Buddha or undigested pizza or anything like that. This is Jesus the Nazarene. I am Jesus the Nazarene. This is the very one Saul had refused to believe was the Son of God. The very one Saul had refused to believe arose from the dead, who was the Messiah. The very one whose followers he was now trying to exterminate. This is the one that now he is guilty of sinning against and persecuting. And after the identification we now find that it is an effectual call. Look at verse 10. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? What shall I do? You see the incredible transformation of his heart? Of his life? Before he was in 100% rebellion against Christ. Now he said, Lord, What shall I do? From a heart of rebellion now to a heart of submission. From a heart of anger now to a heart of totally wanting to do the will of this this Lord. And the word Lord, by the way, that He uses to address Jesus is a word that's a common term used for God in the Old Testament in the Septuagint. This was an effectual call. It produced an immediate heart change from hatred to willingness to follow. And the fact that He now calls Him Lord is an indication of the heart change, the faith, the repentance that is taking place. 
Let me just say something about the doctrine of election here. I think this uh, whole conversion account of Saul that we find three times in the book of Acts emphasizes the sovereignty of God in saving whom He will. Why doesn't God give the same experience to every sinner on planet earth? Have you ever wondered about that? God could. Couldn't He? Couldn't the Lord Jesus appear to every sinner that ever lived on planet earth and give them an incredible similar experience to this? Couldn't He? Why doesn't He? See, even if you believe in free will, surely more people would be saved, you might think. Why doesn't He? And I've often wondered that if God loves all men equally and desires to save all men, then why doesn't He give all men this same experience? Or even a greater experience? He could do it. Why doesn't He? Because it is His will to show mercy upon some sinners and to give justice to other sinners. Nobody deserves to be saved. No one deserves to be rescued from the judgment that we deserve. But in mercy and grace, He chooses to save some. Saul is an exhibit A on that theology. In verse 10, when now we find, uh, when he says, what shall I do, Lord? Now we find that Paul is going to be given a commission, first through Ananias, and then next time we'll see through Jesus Christ again in the temple. But in verse 10, he says, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, get up and go on into Damascus, and there you'll be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. So now the Lord tells Saul, go into Damascus and you're going to find out everything basically that's been appointed for you. Appointed. What a powerful word. It implies that his ministry has already been planned out by Almighty God. That would include his three missionary journeys, all that's happened to him here, all of his future ministry. You will find out what's been appointed for you to do. I've appointed things for you to do, Saul. And you're going to find out when you go into Damascus. I have a plan for your life. I've planned it all out. It's all been appointed. It's been predestined. God has chosen Paul for this job. Just like back in Acts 9, when the Lord said to him through Ananias, Go for he, Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine. He's chosen. God chose him for this. And God has already appointed the ministry that he would have. Verse 11, but since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, he was blinded actually for three days, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And then a certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. Notice again as he's continuing his testimony, he's drawing attention to Ananias. That Ananias... Hey, he's a, he's a devout man by the standard of the law. All the Jews spoke well of Ananias. Again, he's just trying to show that all these things, there's no anti-Jewishness about him in these, uh, in these uh, incidences that are taking place in his conversion. 
So Ananias now comes in verse 13. He came to me standing near and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time I looked up at him. So now through Ananias, Paul is healed of his blindness. Again, Ananias was devoured by the standard of the law to diffuse accusations that he was against the law in some way. Of course, we we know what Paul taught about that. Law certainly can't save you as the Jews thought, but uh, it was all fulfilled in Christ. But he's, he's addressing this ministry of Ananias. And through Ananias, Jesus Christ healed Paul of his eyes. I say Paul, Saul, I, I, my vocabulary, I keep going back and forth. But that, that giving sight to the blind was very important because that was one of the messianic signs in the Old Testament, Isaiah 35. When the, when the Messiah comes, He will heal the blind. And all the Jews hearing Saul speak would understand that. He was actually healed of his blindness. And then he's given his mission in verse 14. And he, Ananias, said, the God of our fathers has appointed you. Now again, notice again, the God of our fathers. So Paul is recounting Ananias' words to try to let them show, look, this is, I'm coming out of the same heritage that you are. I worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the God of our fathers. And again, Ananias tells Saul, this God of our fathers has appointed you. And again, that's a word oftentimes used of appointing the prophets of the Old Testament, like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and other places. He's appointed you, verse 14, to know His will. And that would occur through the many revelations that Paul received from Christ. To see the righteous one, that is to see the Lord Jesus Christ, And that's significant because Jesus Christ, one of His messianic titles in the Old Testament was that He was the righteous one. In Isaiah 53, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. Jeremiah 23, the Messiah is called the righteous branch who will be called the Lord our righteousness. And so Ananias understands that Paul, Saul, is going to see the righteous one, the Messiah. And that is so, that is such an important description of the Messiah. That he's the righteous one. Because that's in contrast with all of the Jews who were not righteous at all. They were all unrighteous sinners. They were lawbreakers. There's only one righteous one, and that is Jesus Christ. As Paul says, there's none righteous. No, not one. And this is important for Saul to understand because Saul, as a Pharisee, holding to the error of most of the Jews, was always trying to establish their own righteousness according to the law. Paul wrote about that in Romans 10. But that's impossible. No one can be righteous before God in terms of the law of God because we've all broken God's law. Isaiah says all of our righteous deeds are really like filthy rags in the eyes of God. The only righteousness that can save us is the righteousness from the righteous one which is given as a gift when we believe in Him. And this was something 
Saul would have to learn much about. But Ananias tells him that he would see the righteous one. And then look on in verse 14. To hear an utterance from his mouth. And you will be a witness for him to all, the, to all men of what you have seen and heard. The all men, the Jewish mob there standing there listening to Paul at this point. Not sure how they understood it. They don't understand it necessarily as Gentiles. Maybe it's all Jews scattered throughout all the nations. But they don't, they don't erupt in anger until later on when he actually mentions the word Gentiles. But that's his mission. He's going to see Christ, hear His voice, and be a witness to all men. And then in verse 16, Ananias says to Saul, Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name. Just in passing real quick, verse 16 is one of those verses that oftentimes is used to support the necessity of baptism for salvation. Church of Christ will refer to this. But it doesn't teach that at all. In verse 16, you basically have two commands. The first one is to be baptized. The second one is to wash away your sins. And each commandment has a participle that explains the way you get that done. So the first command is to be baptized and the participle that explains it is get up. Be baptized, but in order to be baptized, the means of being baptized, you've got to get up. And then the second command is wash away your sins. And the participle that goes with that is the means of washing away your sins. The way you get that done is by calling on His name. In other words, not saying wash away your sins by being baptized. That's not what He's saying. You wash away your sins by calling on His name. Now, in this, in this uh, occasion, baptism and salvation are very closely linked. Paul probably already had faith, but he's going to confess his faith, but the forgiveness comes from the confession, not the baptism. So just a, a point in passing. But clearly they're linked, as they oftentimes are in the Bible. Someone will come to faith in Jesus Christ, get saved, and then be soon baptized thereafter. That would be a similar thing going on here. The word for wash in verse 16, wash away your sins, is a Greek word, apoluo, which according to the leading Greek lexicon, normally means the washing of the whole body. To bathe. So in other words, wash away your sins. Just completely like a body wash. Just wash away all your sins. How do you do that? By, conf- by calling on His name. Calling on the name of the Lord Jesus. Just wash away your sins. And I think that that is uh, what makes immersion a fitting uh, symbol for baptism. Because baptism is to reflect the cleansing that we receive from faith in Jesus Christ. And because our sin is from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet, Isaiah chapter 1, the cleansing is a total body wash. And I think immersion... Uh, portrays that outwardly in a beautiful way. But let me quickly sum up uh, so far. One of the things we see in this, in this passage is that the Apostle Paul's response to persecution was uh, surprising 
I mean, he doesn't stand up and pronounce an imprecatory psalm on them. Y'all know what an imprecatory psalm is? It's one of the psalms of cursing found in the Psalter. Uh, He doesn't do that. He responds in love to the ones who persecuted him. He responds with the desire to see them saved. After being beaten, his heart was to bless them. And later on in in, uh, Romans 12, Paul will say, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Rather, overcome evil with good. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Love your enemies, Christ said. Pray for those who persecute you. And I must admit that my first reaction when I see people on the news that are just anti-Bible and anti Biblical morality is my, I mean, I'm tempted to, oh God, you know, remove them. I mean, bring down, you know, brimstone and fire or whatever. And I, I must admit it, you know, Nancy Pelosi, I'll just, Chuck Schumer, liberals on the Supreme Court. I mean, sometimes I listen, and some of the Republicans just, I listen to these guys and I think, oh God, just, And what my response should be is, oh God, save them. Change their hearts. And if you don't do it in five minutes, then remove them, you know, or something like that. But you see the heart of the Apostle Paul was to stand there. He had been beaten by them. And how did he respond? Oh, I want you to hear the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's where he was headed for them. And it teaches us that in the midst of opposition, when people, I mean, how do you do, how do you respond to people who injure you or mistreat you or say ugly things? Our flesh wants to get revenge and, and yet we're forbidden from doing it. Leave it in the hands of God. Let the court system do the justice. I'm all for that. But personally, I think our heart should be to, to see them saved. And Paul had already written Romans 9, 10, and 11 by this time. He knew that there was a hardening upon Israel. He knew that God was only saving the remnant, but he didn't know who they were. So he prayed, oh God, he wants to preach the gospel to them that some of them might be saved. And I think that is the response we should have as persecution begins to grow within our own, within our own country. And secondly, real quick, there was no greater sinner. He referred to himself as a chief of sinners than the Apostle Paul. His hatred for Christ, his hatred for other Christians. And here, here's, the, here's the beauty of the Gospel of God's grace. If God can save Saul, He can save any sinner. And there are some people that think, you know what? I've just sinned so much. I've done so many, too many horrible things. God would never forgive me. You know, never shorten the infinitely long arm of God's grace. His arm is never too short to save a sinner. And I think what we see in here is the powerful depth of the mercy and the grace of God. That no matter how deep you have fallen into sin, repent and come to faith in Jesus Christ. And then as the Scriptures say, as far as the east is from the west, so far will He remove your transgressions from you. 
that though your sins were as scarlet, they will be white as snow. That God will remember your sins no more. He will tread your iniquities under His feet and cast them into the very depths of the sea. Any sinner can be saved if they but repent and come to Jesus Christ. If God can change a soul from a persecutor to a preacher, then He can take a violent Antifa member or radical LGBTQ plus member or a liberal politician or an anarchist or a communist or an atheist or an abortion and He can save them and we should be praying for God's grace to save them. And if God chooses not to save them, then of course we pray for God to remove them from places of of influence. I, I still pray that. We can pray them both. But the sinner needs to repent. And finally, just by way of application, a lot of what's happening to Paul, uh, we need to prepare ourselves for persecution. Apart from God's mercy intervening, we will probably experience more of it in America. And we need to remember the hymn of Luther. Let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And that's what we need to be reminded of.